We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. And I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today is a very uh, special guest, someone I've wanted for a very long time, Mohamedou Old Slahi Hobani, who was born in Rosso, Mauritania, the ninth of 12 children on a Campbell Herder. His family moved to the capital of Nukachot, where he was a child, where he excelled in school and earned a scholarship to study electrical engineering at Gerhard Mercator University in Duisburg, Germany. In 2001, he was living and working at home when he was detained in rendition to Jordan, beginning an ordeal that would chronicle in the internationally best-selling Guantanamo Diary. The manuscript, which he wrote in his isolation cell in his detention camp, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, remained classified for almost eight years and was finally declassified with substantial redactions in 2013. It was first published in the United States and the United Kingdom in January of 2013. 15 and has been published in 23, 25 languages. After 15 years of detention, Mohamedou was released on October 17, 2016 to Mauritania. The following year, he published a restored edition of Guantanamo Diary, filling in the U.S. government's redactions. And in 2021, his first novel, The Actual True Story of Ahmed and Zadaga, is being published by Ohio University Press. In 2021, a theatrical film was released entitled The Mauritanian, which is, of course, based on Slahi's detention and torture, in which actor Tahar Rahim played the part of Slahi, in which was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards and five nominations at the British Film Academy Awards as well. Welcome, Mahamadou. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Adam, for having me in your beautiful uh, podcast. And I can't wait to hear uh, your final cut and i'm so happy to do this with you oh thank you pal well you know i'll just start out pretty simple mohamedou what was your childhood like you know adam i remember vividly uh, this day i think i was in second or third grade and i needed to go to school and it was really very hot. It was between 2 and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And uh, it was really hot. Mauritania can really be very hot. And I did not have shoes. But a small technicality like that wouldn't hold me back because I fell in love with school. And uh, so I 
started my way to school and I kept, kept stopping, you know, at shades of structures and whatever trees I find on my way to cool down my small feet. And this worked, except for this uh, very nosy neighbor who stopped me and she started scolding me and give me a lecture why I don't wear my quote unquote my shoes. And I was so ashamed to tell her that I was poor. I didn't have, we didn't have money to afford shoes. And the irony is that she was trying to help me, but she was really hurting me because uh, as she was lecturing me about the, about the necessity of wearing shoes, I was suffering because my feet were pinned, you know, on the hot sand. At some point, I wasn't listening to her lecture anymore. I was just devising my plan to get out of this, and I did not know how. And uh, because if I tell her the truth, it was very uh, shameful for me to be so poor. At least I thought as a child. And uh, she is, we, we were like raised to respect the elderly, mm. in this case, unfortunately. And uh, so I told her, okay, I go back home and get my non-existent shoes. <laughs> she said, yes, good for you. This woman is a very known woman because later on her son became the president of Mauritania. And... Uh, and, but back then we did not know this. And then, uh, and she, uh, so I went back and I took a longer route. So why did I go to school? Me and my older brother, we went to school about, about the same time we started the school. And the reason why we started the school because our way of life as a herder had no uh, future. And this was a very hard decision for my father. And my mother, you know, decided that we go to the city or close to the city to find work. And my father was living in the fantasy that the good, good old days were going to come back. But the good old days never come back. They weren't going to come back. So, and uh, my uh, older brothers found job. One of them as a baker. One of them was a like convenience store clerk. And me and my brother, we were like too small to find job. No one wanted to hire us. So we went to school. And I fell in love with school. And, uh, and uh, my family never asked me about school. Because my mother and because this was our first experience with the, with Western, I mean, with French education system, because in our system as Bedouins, we don't have tests. You just study as you wish and you study what you want to study. Of course, your family decide that you start with Quran, with grammar, etc. And uh, And... So, and I never told them about the test. And no one asked me about the test. 
but uh, I was always number one in my class, you know, and my family never knew that. So all the way, uh, of course, I think as uh, school uh, progressed, uh, they knew, oh, okay. Oh, they heard that other students are passing tests and they start, you know, to pay more attention. And when I moved from uh, uh, primary school to uh, high school, the names of the people who made it to high school were announced in the, in the radio. And uh, they heard my name, you know, because it was actually, I wasn't supposed to do the test because uh, primary school is six years in Mauritania. And I did only four years. And I insisted, I went to the principal of the school and I told him, I want to do like with the other kids. I want to go to high school. He said, get out, get out. Then I went out and I kept coming back to him. This is without my family knowledge. They didn't know anything. And he said, you are, you are really uh, annoying. And then because I annoyed him coming every day to his office, he said, okay, go. And I didn't know, I don't know whether he told me I wish you don't pass, but he said he wouldn't lose anything. He just, I'm just a kid who doesn't know what he's doing and I, I wouldn't make it. And then he doesn't have to deal with me every day coming to his office. And uh, so, and then I told my family, okay, I did the test. Now we had to wait. And then we waited and my name was announced in the radio. And then, because this was like big going from, you know, primary school to a college. And uh, so uh, college is sex, uh, uh, not college, uh, high school. High school is six years. Like what you guys call junior high is three and mm -hmm. senior high is three. You know, back then at least. And then when I was, uh, when I, was in my last year, you know, I received a scholarship, you know, like the, the you know, certain student, you know, get scholarship to France, to, you know, uh, other countries. Very few, like maybe not 20, most like maybe 50, 30 people like get to Western Europe. And then, I was chosen to do the German test and I did it. Germany, I never thought about Germany in my life. I always want to go to France because I liked football. And, you know, and I was just impressed with the French language, French people. I used to go and walk uh, past the embassy. I see like French people dress very well. The women are dressed very well, the girls. I was really very impressed, you know. And I was a very poor child, you know, just seeing that, you know, it's like watching a Hollywood movie that you are not part of. And uh, I was I was really in love with a country that doesn't know me and a culture that doesn't know me. And then my lot was German. And I remember, you know, as a teenager boarding my plane, then my mother cried at the airport and I said, no. And then I took all my stuff and I said, I'm not going, you're crying. 
Then he said, no, no, they, they explained to my family, said, no, you need to go because your mother would cry because she's also happy, but sad at the same time. You know, I did not know that you could have both emotions at the same time back then. And then when we arrived, we arrived in Paris because our flight was Nouakchott, Paris, uh, Frankfurt. We arrived in Paris, I think, and I saw 9 p.m. And 9 p.m., the sun is out. It was in, you know, late summer. And I said, wow, this is it's crazy. I never, the first time I see the sun out, 9 p.m. Because the sun, at most in Mauritania, 7 p.m., you know. You cannot get uh, between 7 and 8, actually. Yes. So, and... Uh, and it was like amazing to me that this is night, but the sun is up. <laughs> and then we took the plane to Frankfurt. And then the first time I spent in a hotel, Sheraton, I remember the name. And, uh, and the first time in my life, I sit alone in a room. No one with me. The first ever. 17, 18 years old, I was never with, I was never alone. And I was scared to be alone, you know, because like the notion that, oh, you don't have a privacy if you are not alone is erroneous. You can have all the privacy you want if you are not alone, because, you know, you can really disappear in plain sight with the family, you know. You just like ignore them. And then you're alone already. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember, you know, I also had a TV in my room. This is big. We, never, we didn't have TV because my older brother, when my fa father passed away, I didn't tell you my father passed away when I was 10, 11 years old. And my brothers, you know, took care of us. So and he did not want a TV in the house because it would interfere with our education, etc. And now I had the TV. You know, I'm a person now, I can do everything. And then I look in the room, I found some soap and I found towel, two towels, I think. And I stole one of the towel and I stole the soap and the shampoo and put them in my bag. So this was my first theft ever. And, uh, and, so I spent the night, I was really tired, I fell asleep. I don't know how I fell asleep because it, everything was so, you know, so new to me. Yeah. Then this, this young man, uh, Lamin, he came to me in the morning. I don't know how he knew the, the, the number of the room, but it turns out they have a place they call the information, you can ask questions. And then, and that was because I came to my room using the lift. And that's why I was completely disoriented. I didn't know where I am because the lift, it's so amazing. You, There is a box. You sit in a box. You hit a button. And then, and then you go inside another room. So I didn't know how to go back. And I didn't know how to use it. So this guy came to me, young man. He said, you know, we can eat. Uh, we can eat like uh, for free. I said, really? He said, yes, we can eat for free. 
So and I came, and it's amazing that when you are like a kid, a teenager, you you just go with the flow. There is no there is no pre uh, you know pre conception or anything. You just go with the flow. You know, I didn't know how to use the elevator, but I just went with it and. I will learn it later on. That's how it's go. And then we went to this very big buffet. A lot of businessmen. This is like five-star hotel, I presume. And then I saw for the first time so much food. I never seen so much food. Like all kind of like coffee, all kind of juices, all kind of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, like... Uh, 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 bagels or everything breads everything like uh, you know and uh, so and I didn't know what to to eat because this is like a classic case uh, as the Germans say Wahl der Wahl the torture of too many choices mm. and now I said I need to eat something because I cannot just stay there like a stupid, stand there like a stupid person. And then, but I need to pick up something that I know how to eat. So I think I know how to eat bread. I never had croissant in my life. And, and uh, so I took an egg. I remember taking an egg and I remember also taking tea. Very bad tea, by the way. And uh, I sat there, broke the egg. It wasn't cooked well. So I couldn't eat it. And then I found myself in a really, uh, in a, you know, like holding a, a hot potato. You know, <laughs> you don't want to get rid of it and you don't want to hold on to it. <laughs> so, so now I need to devise a plan of retreat because now I know this is not my field. I'm going to lose the battle. And then I was worried about the people judging me. You know, what I was wearing, I think was jeans that didn't fit and uh, and the t-shirt that was absolutely not for the uh, for the cold weather. And for some reason I retreated. Took the plane to a city called Saarbrücken, mm -hmm. uh, not far from French, French border. And the plane was so small, and it shook a lot. I thought I was gonna die because I stole towels from from Sheraton, and uh, and thus began my uh, journey in the West. Sure did. You had a lot. There was a, there was a lot of um, a lot of growing up in a short amount of time for you, because um, you were on your own, and uh, yes. around that same time too, there's a lot of worldly events happening, and. Um, one one in particular is to me a game changer, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, but when they retreated in 1989, uh, you decided to uh, enter the fight against the communists in uh, in Afghanistan in um, 1991. Uh, well, I'm sorry, 1990, I believe. And then you, um, this is your introduction into helping the uh, the Islamic. Uh, Uma fight against the communist regime that was left over in Afghanistan. And 
you were introduced to uh, an Al-Qaeda training camp in Al-Farouk. Uh, just tell us how you heard about this group and what made you want to go to Afghanistan in the first place. Correct. So, uh, you know, like when I came to Germany, you know, I started learning the language. And for the first time, I, I experiment, I experienced freedom. I did not know what freedom was. Mm. I always, because I grew up in a military regime where my mother, you know, measure us in peace, would tell us as kids that we cannot talk about politics as children. Mm. And that the wall, the walls had ears. This is very prof prophetic of her because now we know that walls have ears actually, you know? And we lived like in fear and, you know, but I wasn't too afraid because I was a kid. So I didn't, yeah. uh, I know there was no, uh, you know, I had no interest in politics or anything. So, and as long as you don't challenge the regime, you're safe. If, if you don't have money and you are not doing politics, you're safe, you know? And I, I, I couldn't like, put it this way, but that was my instinct. So, and uh, my, so, and, but when I came to Germany, I saw that people can criticize the government. They can talk. And even they made like uh, fun of the government on national TV, on like uh, public funded, you know, TV. They can make fun. This is like unheard of for me as a kid, so. And then uh, I was like really very upset uh, why we wouldn't have this kind of freedom in my country and in the uh, in the region. And I was try I started to read and listen. Uh, there was a lot of material about Afghanistan, about Palestine. By the way, I went to a Palestinian event. I went to Iranian event and the demonstration. Because I picked up the language really very quick, and then I was able to, you know, go to the demonstration, go to speeches. And uh, so Afghanistan was very practical. Palestine, you know, I was just a young person, and I, I wanted to help. Mm. Palestine was not an option because it's just not an option. And uh, there is no Palestinian state back then to go to. So. Right. And to help, you know, like they do now, they go to Ramallah and so. Maybe I would have gone to Ramallah or to Gaza, but there was no Gaza back then as it is now or Ramallah. So, and, uh, and Afghanistan was very practical because Afghanistan was officially backed by the, by the uh, German government, you know, and they had an embassy in Back then, the, the, the capital is uh, Bonn, not uh, Berlin. This is, I went 91, uh, January 91. So I, I left like end of December and I get there 91. So, and uh, so I had this idea and there was also a lot of material about Afghanistan. So it's accessible because you have this like, you have this like very powerful, you know, triangular, you know, um, 
alliance that support Afghanistan, the USA, and then the uh, the the Gulf monarchies and uh, Western Europe. This you cannot get better than this, you know, if you want money, weapons. So all of those people, and so you have propaganda material, everything about the war. And then I listened to tapes, so I had everything. And and then the uh, the ambassador of the Mujahideen used to come uh, to the uh, cultural centers and mosques and hold speeches, you know. So this is all official and you can give money. And I didn't have money. And so they said we can also use volunteers. And the other thing that really sp sped up the whole process of going there is the invasion of uh, is the uh, first Gulf War. Mm. You know, because the first Gulf War, you know, showed that we are not independent. And for some reason, without, without, you know, giving any value judgment that our regimes are really corrupt and the people are really uh, having the uh, the shorter, you know, end of the stick every time. Mm. And then, so you have the invasion of Iraq, the humiliation and of war, and you have those like Mujahideen, quote unquote, who are making gain and starting an Islamic country where everybody would have bread and everybody would be respected and et cetera, et cetera, you know. Back then, I did not know that there is such thing as a theory and practice, no clue. So, and uh, so I went to the embassy. I remember vividly when they gave me the address, it was on Theater uh, Strasse 12. That is the theater street number 12. And I went to the embassy, embassy of the Mujahideen in Bonn. And then they, with another friend, you know, may he rest in peace, he died, he passed away. He stayed in Afghanistan, he passed away. And uh, they, they uh, gave us uh, egg, they, you know, scrambled eggs. And then they, we ate with with them, with, they were very like simple people, you know. The ambassador talked to us, and they explained to us, you know, the war that a lot of people died, become martyr, everything. And I always wanted to be a martyr, but I, when he spoke about it, I was really afraid, you know. Yeah. The whole, you know, dying and everything was really. He explained really in a, in a very like uh, casual matter or factly fashion that really made me very scared, you know. And uh, and uh, we both told him that we want to go there. And he showed us two separate visas in the guise of letters of recommendation. They were written in, I think, I presume in Pashto or in Farsi. And I took them. I could only read my name. I couldn't understand anything else. It could have been when this guy arrived, kill him, ah, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And then I took this letter with me and I purchased the ticket. I paid 1,000 
200 Deutsche Mark, that is 600 Euro. And uh, my ticket went from Düsseldorf in Germany through uh, Jeddah and from Jeddah direct to Islamabad. And uh, I stayed in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, I think for one week, I had friends who studied at the Islamic University in Medina, I visited them. And I did Umrah. Umrah is a small uh, pilgrimage, you know, like you just go to Mecca and for like maybe 50 minutes. And uh, and thus began began my journey with the Mujahideen and in Afghanistan. When uh, you returned back to um, your country, it was the Senegalese and the Mauritanian Secret Service who vigorously questioned you when you were intercepted by authorities in Dakar after your plane trip from Brussels. Uh, you have Senegalese, Mauritanian, U.S. authorities deciding what to do with you. And there was much confusion as to what to charge you with since there was no crime they can't connect you to. Uh, so two questions. Um, what information specifically did they want from you? And when you were released and went back home, did it ever occur to you that the U.S. authorities would come after you again? So uh, uh, do you mean like after, after, you mean after my release from Guantanamo? Or I don't understand. No, no, this was before, way before. Uh, okay. You came home from Afghanistan and you went back um, traveling to Dakar, to Brussels. But they, the authorities were intercepting you uh, in your trips. I think this was um, when you were living in Canada, I want to say. Correct. And the authorities were, were uh, investigating you for, uh, I, I don't know what for, basically. But um, it seems that whenever um, former Mujahid traveled from Afghanistan, went back to their home countries, the investig investigated countries of uh, like the United States or Germany or Canada began doing like open investigations into terrorism at the time when terrorism wasn't really prominent in other countries uh, in the uh, early 90s, but they started investigating you. But um, why did they want to investigate you? And did it ever occur to you that the United States would ever come after you again like they did uh, when they renditioned you? Very, very beautiful question. So I stayed in Afghanistan about three months. That was all my time, right. One, two times. And then all my time in Afghanistan, about three, at most four months. I trained in Al Faro camp, of course. You cannot, when you go there and you give them the letter of recommendation, they send you wherever they want. Mm. I did not, I never heard of Al Qaeda in my life. I never met Osama bin Laden in my life. And I did not meet him. In I saw him from afar one time. That's it. We never talked. Was it a big camp at all? Or uh, the, there are different camps. So there is Al Farouk, there is Abu Bakr, and there is Khaldan. I was only in Al Farouk camp. So and I would say when I was there, it's maybe about a hundred people. Oh, no. You know, but people come and go. Come mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. Training six, seven weeks, you know, just you know how to shoot the small weapon and things like that. Introduce you to uh, 
guerrilla uh, war, warfare. And so, in one Afghanistan, when I was there, Kabul fell to the Mujahideen. And they started like butchering each other. And I was so scared because I said, I don't want to be part of this. This is not, they used to talk about that the Mujahideen are good people. They are not good people, you know. And if you butcher, you know, a human being, you are not a good person. This was like a clear fight over power. And I knew I cannot be part of that. Took my ticket, took my passport from the uh, hotel, from the safe house, because you have to give them your passport. I said, I need to go back home. And the guy was very, you know, very, uh, uh, very collaborating. And he gave me my passport. He could have taken it away and I, I, I would never leave. Uh, Pakistan, and then I left, never to turn my 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 uh, my back, you know. And this was ninety two, about March ninety two, or uh, or fe- February or March ninety two. Now forward more f- forward, now more than six years after that, ninety nine. 99, I received a phone call from my cousin who lived back then in Sudan. Uh, he's very known. His name is Abu Hafs. And, uh, and he, the reason why he called me, he's my cousin and he's also my former brother-in-law. And his father was in the hospital seeking medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to help him to send money to his father because he couldn't send it from Sudan. And I did help him. Two things I did not know. The first thing that he was using the phone that belonged to Sam Bin Laden. And the second thing that that phone was being monitored by the CIA. Those are things that I didn't know about, didn't know about back then. I didn't know the working of it. I know like about 98. 98, I think the USA started to talk about Al-Qaeda and so 98. And I know that because I saw the news. But, okay, that's it. And so now I was in the crossfire. I didn't know any of this. So later on, I learned this from the uh, Mauritanian investigation. Uh, So, and then my name was, you know, attacked without my knowledge because I received a phone call. And then everything started to go down. Like I was uh, called by the immigration and my uh, visa was canceled. And I was just living in fear, but I didn't know what's going on. I know it has something to do with tourism, but I don't know the story. You know, there are a lot of puzzles that I couldn't understand. How did they know? So I went to Afghanistan almost seven years back and I came back from Afghanistan. So what what the problem? What did I or what what am I missing here? I'm I'm missing a lot. So turns out. So and I had a friend by the name of uh, Mohsin. He was he studied with me in Duisburg. He was like he came five years before me and he finished, and then he went to Canada and he immigrated to Canada. And we were in communication. He told me, Mohammed, you can come to Canada. It's really good country. There is no racism, nothing. And then I applied for Canada uh, for immigration and I was approved. You know, 
And I came to Canada in a time where everything was on fire. Because when I came in Canada, uh, December 99, I think December 15th, when Ahmed Rassam, you know, tried to cross the border in the infamous 9-11 plot. Millennium plot, right? Yeah, millennium plot. Yes, and I was in, in, I was in, I just arrived like maybe one month ago. And like the investigators were saying, okay, we have a guy, the guy coming from Germany and millennium plot. And they designated me like the, the, uh, the mastermind. And man, I was so scared. And then they came to my apartment. One time I was, uh, my roommate was Murad. And he, he, he woke up one morning, he said, Muhammad, someone is, uh, is, is uh, you know, boring a hole, you know, in, in our apartment. I said, how? He said, I woke up, I heard some noise and I wake up. And when I wake up, I moved my bed and I saw like a hole all the way to the next apartment. I said, seriously? And then he showed me. And I said, let's go uh, to the neighbor and see. Because this is like the next apartment, you have to go out and then go to the next apartment. And then I said, no, 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 no. We have to call the police. You cannot do that. Because, because I know what I had trouble in Germany. <laughs> and I, I know more information than my roommate knows. So I, I need to involve the police right away. And then I called the police. And then they came to me. And then they looked at it. And they said, do you have some like, glue or something to put on it. I was very upset. I said, wow, I didn't think you are a mason. I thought you are a policeman. Are you the repair person or are you a policeman? And then I said, I need your, I need your ID. I need, I need your number. And then he know that I'm not, uh, he's not going to pull this on me. And then he said, okay, before he gave me my ID, he said, okay, he went outside, said, I'm going to check. You know, just give himself time to come up with a better story. He came back to me, said, oh, yes, we talked to the neighbor. It's all, you know, innocent mistake. You know, this, he was trying to hang, you know, a picture on the wall. And then he was drilling. And I was, I was saying, drilling like, 10 inch above the ground, or I, I think 20 inch above the ground, that's where you hang picture. I said, no, no, this is not, this is not okay. And then they gave me their, uh, so later on, you know, uh, it turns out that this was like operation of the intelligence, uh, Canadian intelligence. You know, they want to, because later on, we know that they were listening to me and recording my conversation because I heard my conversation in Guantanamo Bay, the American, you know, confronted with my conversation. There is nothing in them, you know, right. but still. And so the police was uh, on in it. So they were just like calling and receiving when someone must have told them, uh, so that guy, you need to tell him this and this. So this is an ongoing operation. So anyway, so, and uh, I left the apartment and sought asylum in the mosque because I did not feel safe at all, because everywhere I go, I have people following me. Mm. You know? So what they did when I went to the mosque, they 
call the Jordan intelligence for help, you know, cultural help, you know, yeah. you know, and they, they uh, one of the, I think two agents came, one of them I met, interrogated me in Jordan, because he confronted me, said, I met you in the mosque, I was watching, I said, okay, did, did you hear me or see me do anything wrong? He said, no, to be honest, not. He said, so what? He said, you are only very friendly to everyone. That's all I can tell you, to be honest with you. And I said, I'm not doing anything, you know. And then he, uh, so, and th th this was a big problem to the Canadian intelligence because American insisted I be uh, arrested, but Canadian said, we couldn't find anything right. to arrest. There is no cause, you know. We couldn't find, you know. And then American like said, this is a really smart guy who does not leave any freaking place. Then they started the the uh, kidnapping operation. So you um so yeah, you so you left Canada and then where'd you go from so, there? So what what happened? So I you know I I didn't feel safe at all. So and uh, so I sought asylum. In, in the mosque, in the local mosque, uh, Masjid al-Sunnah, al-Sunnah mosque, which did not help because also uh, sunnah mosque was also, it turns out, was targeted by the intelligence uh, community. So, and this is all like, has a lot to do with my ignorance. But, uh, you know, I think I I'm giving myself I can give myself, I cut myself maybe slacks because when you're afraid, you don't know what to do. So I was really scared to go to the uh, to a, a lawyer and to say that I don't feel safe in a democracy. And that's not normal. That knowing that you haven't done anything wrong, you know, that you, you don't feel safe. You know, and, uh, you know, we are a human being and every time I'm obsessed with this, uh, uh, true crime shows and every time you know people go to the police even people with experience they talk to the police they get themselves in trouble and uh, so and uh, we we really seek like you know uh, self-preservation is very important and I, I would think I was uh, self-preserving because I saw that the state is against me it's not going to help me and I wasn't mature enough to say no. They say need to help me, and I'm going to the state to help me and to stop this. And the more I go away from the state, the more they think, oh, he's really guilty and so. So what they did, they, there was a, a tripartite operation going on that I didn't know about. So they called the Mauritanian intelligence back then. Mauritania was, uh, was uh, governed by the military which is like a paradise for like CIA and FBI because they don't like freedom. They don't like you to live in a freedom. This is a fact. And then they were like, the talk must have been something like, so this guy is hiding behind the rule of law. We cannot touch him. So we need him in a place where we can touch him. So they spoke to the, so that I know the part. They spoke to the Mauritanian government. They said, you need to convince Mohammed to come back to the country. 
So, and the, the director of intelligence, the Dahi back then, he went to my mother and he told her, your son is in trouble and you need to call him back to his country so we could protect him. We cannot protect him in Canada. And then my mother called me, you know, through my sister. She said, I need to come back. She is sick and she needs me to come back. It's almost like my family was, you know, part of the conspiracy without them knowing. Mm. And then and I was kind of glad, you know, to just, you know, because I was living in fear. And then, and then like people in the mass told Muhammadu, you are going to get hurt really bad because you, you have problem in Canada. You need to solve your problem because when you go out of Canada, you are not going to you are not going to be able to come back and because uh, there was another case of uh, an Algerian uh, Canadian who was kidnapped in Jordan and delivered to France and uh, Canada uh, Canada is very infamous of their uh, failure not only failure to protect also failure you know in that they cooperate with foreign agencies against their own citizens mm. you know Arar case in point me case in point because i was a landed immigrant you know and uh, which give me a status a special status to be protected so first part of the operation good i accepted the the lure and then i bought my ticket and i took my ticket it was uh, montreal brussels Dakar. So uh, Dakar, this was the cheap cheapest ticket, you know, and Dakar is about five hundred kilometers. That is three hundred miles from home, and I called my brother to pick me up. Uh, two of my brothers came to pick me up, and I was arrested in Dakar. Yeah. And later on, I was delivered in a special rendition plane to Mauritania. And I spent about eight, uh, 18 days in prison. And they came to Mauritania, very simple. They said, American wouldn't give us any, any uh, evidence. But my passport was taken away, and I was not allowed to leave the country. So what American did is, he's, he, we, we, we cannot give you evidence, but we don't want him to go anywhere. That's it. Mm. And that's, it. that's how it started. And then later on, 9-11 happened, and then I was kidnapped. Right. So yeah. what, what you had, I mean, your own country was basically keeping you in like in a state of paralysis almost. You are not charged with anything, but you're not free to go. And because the United States is having this enormous pressure on the government. And so what happened was in, in chapter three of your book, Guantanamo Diary, you, you mentioned that in the, and I thought this was pretty interesting. You mentioned that in the constitution of Mauritania, the government cannot allow for a foreign country, which was Jordan in this case, to arrest and transport a citizen based on no evidence whatsoever for crime. Or yeah, any evidence. This is what happened to you. Or but, any evidence for that matter. It right. is anchored in our constitution that a Mauritanian citizen cannot be extradited. Right. It doesn't matter what crime you do. Once you touch, uh, uh, once you touch uh, uh, 
the national soil, you can only go to trial in Mauritania. You cannot go to trial in another country. And if you, if so if you are innocent, that's, you are innocent anyway, but if you are not innocent, you are going to try in Mauritania and the other country can bring the evidence and it's up the Mauritanian judge to eva evaluate. It's really, the constitution is beautiful, everything, but there was no respect to anything, you know. Unfortunately, uh, it was not only Mauritania in this. It was Mauritania and it was Jordan and it was Cyprus. You know, Cyprus, a member of the European Union that should uh, supposed to hold itself to a very high standard of human rights and the rule of law. My plane touched down in Cyprus and those guys went outside, did whatever they want to do. And I wished I could like scream so that someone could see me because I was like entering and leaving countries without a passport. You know, and this is like, you know, I really felt like, you know, helplessness all around, you know. You, uh, I think the president of Mauritania at the time was, and correct me if I'm wrong, Aoud Sidakman, um, I'm sorry, um, yeah. Aoud Sidakman Tayu? He's now in Qatar. He's now in Qatar? He's yeah. Now in Qatar. So you're on, so here you are with no, no, you have no idea what they're charging you with, nothing at all. You're on a transport plane. Um, and you're you're they just you're really uncomfortable because you're chained to the floor and not allowed to see. Um, but uh, uh could you tell me just a little bit? Uh, you said you did a crisis prayer. Uh could you what is a crisis prayer? So crisis prayer, so when whenever I'm in this situation, you know. You know, I mean, I always ask people whether they ever experience, experience death. And I'm, I'm not talking about like this cliche near-death experience. I'm talking about real death. And then they came back as, uh, as a different person because this happened to me, you know? And so whenever I, I, I get like in this situation, I don't remember anything anymore. I don't remember my prayer. I don't remember the Quran. I forget everything except this crisis prayer, Ya Hayyu, Ya Qayyum, meaning um, approximately the living and the one who is taking care of me. You, you know, the living, Ya Hay, or the living, Qayyum, or uh, the one, uh, my protector, you know, the one who protects me. That's it. And then I just keep like in my heart because, because in this situation you are not allowed to say anything or because they beat you. And I just keep, you know, repeating in my heart. I remember, you know, I, uh, they, he brought me, the, the director of intelligence brought me to give me to the Jordanian. It was Ramadan. And I was really scared, you know. And we stopped on the way. He wanted to, to uh, buy something from a supermarket. And I saw this UN, UN truck. And I just wanted to jump on it because the driver left the key and he went into the supermarket. But I saw a child. This was more a fantasy than anything. And, then, and I was so weak and so sick anyway. 
and the fear I felt is indescribable. I mean, I'm being sent to Jordan. I'm not being sent to Jordan because I was going to be treated in a good way. Jordan is very infamous for mm -hmm. its rights violation. And I was more scared because the US wouldn't take me because I told my director, so if you want to give me to the US, you can give me to the US directly. He said, no, the US asked us to give you to Jordan. I had no clue there was Afghanistan. I had no clue about you know, the development of the war because I stayed all this time after 9-11 in prison and incommunicado, I had no access to the north. And, uh, and uh, so, and uh, so we came and then, uh, so the plane touched down. It was, I think, Gulf Stream, kind of, uh, to a small plane, six people. And uh, so they were like two pilots, you know, uh, two interrogators and two uh, like ninja-like special force kidnapping team. They didn't speak. I don't know who they were. And then the uh, the uh, the chief, you know, the chief of the operation, you know, stepped out of the plane. And then it was me and the director of intelligence. And then he spoke to the director of intelligence, but uh, the he did not understand him. Because the day he knows only like Mauritanian Arabic, like and French, and and of course he knows standard Arabic obviously. But but the Jordanian guy spoke with accent that you really need to be like me, you know, to meet people from that region in order to understand. So he didn't understand him, and I translated. I said he wants fuel. And then, uh, and then the, the the police director called the uh, whatever. And then they came with the with the with the truck that uh, gave them fuel. And uh, and he asked us the Jordanian guy. He says, "Where is the detainee?" And then, <laughs> and then the director said, "This is the detainee." So this was like the very shock because you know. This is, was not his first kidnapping operation because usually, uh, usually, like you cannot see, you cannot hear, and you don't know where you're going. So that's the kidnapping uh, procedure. But Mauritania was really new into this uh, so-called war on terror. They did not know this uh, SOP, and Mauritania did not see me as threat in any shape or form to anyone. So. And he was casually was smoking and telling me, yeah, that's him. And then I, I will tell you this, and I'm ashamed to admit it, because I was so like scared. And uh, and uh, I was just, you know, out of my mind. I I asked the Mauritania, I said, could you please ask him not to torture me? I actually told him that. And this is, if there is desperation, if there is any statement of desperation, this is one. Mm. Those people I'm talking to are, are thugs, are criminals who make a living to torture people, interrogate them outside the rule of law and kidnap them, you know, completely outside the rule of law. 
and I'm trying to negotiate with them, like not to hurt me. So, and uh, so they took me to the, pl the plane and then they, they did the operation procedure, like chained me and then blindfolded me and start right away, they start the operation. Jordanians are very trained. So mm. I think they're, I, you know, this is only me, but I think they're really trained by like a special force USA. And so they have very close relationship with them. And, you know, it's, you know, uh, one of the things that speaks to that, that they trust them more, you know, because they sent me to them, you know, because to the law enforcement like CIA and FBI, it's a mess to send me to the US because following the rule of law is, is too much that is not necessary really. You know, you need, like they would say, you need to get down and dirty. And uh, this is unfortunately very scary. Very scary to have a very vital, important institution of the leader of the free world who does not believe in democracy and the rule of law. That's very, very dangerous for the future of freedom anywhere, by any measure, by any standards. And so this whole like, you know, democracy, and the rule, this is all a game to them. You know, that play, you know, to the, uh, people who don't understand how things work, those people are savages. And savages, we don't need the rule of law. We need to torture them, get the information, get the hell out of it, you know. And I am all around a proof that they're wrong, you know. All the indications they had are wrong. Mm. And this is a human being. So we know we have democracy, now we have the rule of law for a reason, because no matter what the king think, he may be wrong, and that maybe he is wrong. You know, it's the whole difference make the whole difference. You know, you know, you know. People say you pee on yourself. I was so I think I was so dehydrated that I couldn't pee on myself. Mm. But I think nothing else would have. Stop. The kind of fear I experienced, I cannot put in words. Waiting on torture, waiting on all that I read in books, you know, about the torture, people who went to prison, and I read about what they experienced. I imagine the worst. And we have a saying in Arabic, waiting on torture is worse than torture itself. Yeah, worse than torture itself, right? Yes. Because actually what happens if someone starts hitting you or like, because I went through this, in the middle of it, your body does not, doesn't feel anything really. So it's only like in the beginning and then your uh, adrenaline shoot up and then you are in a different world. So, and uh, I was in and out of, they started to uh, interrogate me in the plane but it was so loud in the plane 
that I couldn't understand anything, they couldn't understand me. So they gave up on interrogation. They stopped, I think, three times. And every time I was praying that, especially in Cyprus, because I had Cyprus in the year, mm -hmm. on the phone, I was wishing that they took me out in Cyprus and put me in prison. Because I just don't want to go to this destination. Imagine you are in a plane and all your prayer, please don't come to destination. When the prayer of everybody in a plane, that they come to their destination, they're getting tired, you know, of, but all I was praying, I don't want the destination. You know, I came and then I remember it should have been at the break of dawn in Jordan the next day. I think the journey took 12 hours, torturous hours. And then I was so cold, but when the new team took me, they hold me like very violently. And I felt like the warmth of their bodies, even their violence, I needed it because I was really cold. I didn't eat, I didn't, so, you know, it, you know, pushes some life in me. Even though I was like, uh, I was, you know, uh, I had like this, you know, ear uh, mark. I could hear the radio. They turn on the radio, and I love, I'm, I'm, I love the uh, Shami accent, like in that region, Syria and and Jordan. This very beautiful accent, you know, and I heard this lady like. Uh, you know, I think talking about the weather or something. And then it's only like not a minute they changed the channel or they pushed in a tape in Quran. Of course, Quran. Mm -hmm. Quran is good. You know, especially if you are a dictator and you don't want people to know what's going on outside. Give them the Quran, you know, that you really don't care about. I came and then they give me to a new team. The new team start asking me a question, very weird question. Where are you from, Mauritania? Where did they capture you? I was like, in Mauritania. I said, what? I said, in Mauritania. And then one of them was making fun, said, a country given its own citizen, they making fun of Mauritania. So, But they were really very, uh, very basic and they didn't seem to know a lot. They just like, you know, soldiers. You know, who just processed people. Yeah. They just processed me, you know. And they took me, uh, put me in a room. I was tired. I was hungry. I was thirsty. But that didn't matter because the only thing that matters is how much fear I was in. Yeah, sure. I couldn't sleep. Every time I close my eyes, I have nightmares about the torture that is coming up. I look in the cell and I found old book, Al-Milal Wal-Nihal. It's a known book written by, uh, by Muhammad ibn Hazm in the Middle Ages, uh, a Spaniard. And it was about the different factions of Islam, Christianity and Judaism you know, of his time. And I hated that book because 
I didn't want to hear about war. I didn't want to hear about people differences or anything because I found myself a victim of when people fight, you know. And so I kept waiting, looking forward to the torture because I wanted to get, I want to get it over with. I don't know what time because I didn't know time. Night or day, I didn't know. They took me. Then they start interrogating me while I was blindfolded. No, 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 no. They first took me to a room where I could hear an interrogation of another person. That person spoke very little Arabic with very clear Turkish accent. And they were like very loud. I'm telling you, I know everything. And then he was like, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm just here and... You just pick me up and uh, I'm, I'm innocent. Things like that. So that was like, you know. Your introduction. Yeah. Yes, that's that's the message I need to understand that no one is getting away with lies, with etc. Only full confession. So they took me to this room. They started to get me, you know, uh, blindfolded. So they said, do you know where you are? I was like, yes, in Jordan. One look like cursing because I wasn't supposed to be told where I was. That's a mistake from the Mauritanian part because they want to shock me completely. You know, 12 hour of flight, that's how they do it. And then interrogation, you don't know where you are. And then I said, yeah, they told me in Mauritania I was going to Jordan. So, and then they took the blindfold. Then they said, you know what? He said, you know what? This is thugs. This is not anything that you can imagine, you know, to be in. In anywhere, you know, unless, you know, you, you cross, you know, double cross the mafia. You, you know, I have only one question. And if you answer it, I'm sending you home. Send you home. Of course, you know. I, I was losing my mind, but not that, you know, I know that he was telling the truth or anything like that. So, but I said, yeah, yes, of course, I answer any question. So I, I'm, I wish I could play you here. I tell you that I'm a, a hero and I told him, go screw yourself. No, no, none of that. None of that. I was, I was just, you know, I just wanted to answer this question, knowing that I'm innocent and go back home. This whole thing that I refused I only refused because later on, because I know there was no, no value in answering any question. That's when I said, I'm not answering anything. Because I tried everything to tell them I'm an honest guy. I, I never did anything. And after so many, so <laughs> many times, I just gave up. I said, uh, I'm done, you know. So, I said, of course I answered. And then he gave me the passport, it seems, of the person uh, whom, uh, whose interrogation I just witnessed. It was a German passport mm. with clear Turkish name because I can recognize Turkish names. Very recognizable if you know anything about the region. So a Turkish pa uh, German passport, Turkish name, very normal because a very big, uh, uh, very big, uh, like, 
many Turkish people, you know, are uh, many, uh, like two, two to four million people living in Germany are of Turkish descent. So that's something I really know. And that's very smart of him to try to make connection between me and him. He said, I need you to tell me who is this guy. And then we release, we send you home. You know what? I wish I know that, that guy because at least that would have, you know, make give me some like kind of favor, you know. Pretty mm. favor. I, I did something. I did something, dude. I had no clue who that guy was. Zero clue. And I was really very, very disappointed at myself. I told him, I have no clue with this guy. You are a liar. I'm not going to say all this like, uh, all this like, uh, you know, uh, his, his, his language was really bad. You are a liar. You are all terrorists. I know you are, you know, each other. I was like, I don't know him. I don't know. Him. I really don't know him. I have no clue. I cannot tell you. I know something I don't. And then he said, Okay, he sat with me, he said, uh, he said, he offered me tea. And that was like the best cup of tea because like, you know, like when I drink it, like life goes into my whole body. And I also, it was a permission, not only, it was a permission that I can live. So it was a permission from this God, you know, this self-claimed God, that I have the right to live. This was much more important than the tea itself. I sat there, you know, you know, the, the, the warmth start to creep into my every my body, you know, and you know, sitting in front of this evil person, a person I consider to be evil. Because I do believe in and in intelligence services, I do believe in police. I'm not a radical, but I do believe that, uh, you know, security services need to serve the people and not to torture them and to kidnap them. That is so horrific. People you trust, people you give soul, you know, right to use violence and they turn against you. That's horrible, you know, mm. and need to stop in my region and everywhere in the world, including in yours. And... Uh, Sat there, asked me a question, you know, just uh, your regular question. And so I, I didn't experience like, you know, like most of what I experienced is like, you know, I, I, isolation. Most of the time I didn't know day from, you know, day or night. I lost, I lost the count of the days later on. And, uh, and he beat me like, once or twice, but it's not, I mean, it's not just beat me, hit me like, and then push me against the wall because I refused to talk. And then he, he, he took me to the torture room and he just blindfolded me and let me listen to people being tortured. Mm. To be honest, I don't know whether it was a tape or this was like torture. Later on, I knew they tortured people because during my time, there was an attempt to assassinate the chief 
intelligence officer mm. in Germany. So I know that they torture people there. So, and, but I don't know whether that was them torturing them or just tape, tape of them. And then I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. Every time I try to sleep, I hear the cries of those people. And, and from there, the CIA took me and to, uh, to uh, Afghanistan, from Afghanistan to Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, the Georgian impression was under a lot, a lot of pressure by the United States, actually, uh, because of the 9-11 attacks. Um, it seemed like the whole entire Islamic uh, government uh, itself from various countries were under enormous pressure um, from the United States, their coalition partners, to cooperate. So this way they don't look bad in the eyes of the uh, Western world. And it was through no fault of their own, but they're pressured. And a lot of these governments basically are corrupt governments in itself. Nevertheless, they had no, even the Jordanian authorities had nothing on, and they knew it too. Yeah, but, they, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, I forgot to tell you that you're absolutely right. Their report was very clear. Yeah. And that really made the Americans very upset. Right. When, when the Jordanians said, uh, we, we, they cleared me. And then I remember Mr. X telling me, this is America, 9-11 uh, happened in America, not in Jordan. You know, he was very upset, you know, and they were, but I think CIA, to be honest, I really think that CIA uh, had, was on the same page as the Jordanian. That's my research. That's, you know, and that I, was- I would, Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, because in November of 2001, the White House um, made the memorandum about redefining what determines a uh, terrorist or um, somebody who's a threat to national security. And they bypassed the FBI, because usually the Department of Justice here in Mohamedou, in the United States, the Department of Justice usually is the agency that defines what a terrorist is. After 9-11, the White House basically said no, the president is now the power, and basically the attorney general here in the United States and the Department of Justice had no idea that they rewritten this law. And so people like yourself are now determined to be terrorists because the president says so. And so well, you yeah. you get you actually get renditioned to Guantanamo yes, Bay. You have no idea. Absolutely. And I can just add to you that uh, I was bad. I laid there bare because I had no one to defend me. You know, I had no country to defend me. Right. And to CIA or FBI, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm of no value, you know. You know, and this like, this like, uh, this like fascist, you know, view that I always hear, even it creeping, it, it's creeping in, even into journalists. Uh, uh, an example, uh, you heard this tea and uh, invitation on tea. So one of the questions that the journalist, you know, without even noticing that this is a very fascistic something to uh, to consider even, like they told me, so they spoke to me and they came, went back to this uh, FBI. And then the FBI guy, he, Diego, uh, Diego, uh, what's his, Robert, Robert Seidler uh, from San Diego. Robert Seidler. So he told them, I think, or I thought, I don't know what, uh, you know, what time he, uh, 
he used that he is guilty because he wouldn't talk to me and he wouldn't answer my question and then and then they the journalist came back to me and i think he meant well i said yeah that's he told us you wouldn't talk to them and and he said that don't you think this is suspicious and i told him first i don't agree with your premise that i need to talk to the fbi you know i was kidnapped from my home and the first thing they do in the United States of America, if they capture someone, they have to read them their Miranda right. You don't have to talk to us. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And coming from Mauritania does not deprive me of my human rights not to incriminate myself. So that any Asian think that because I came from Mauritania, I'm a young Muslim, I have to spill the bean to them. It's not something I agree with. I would never accept this, you know, and used it as, okay, he's guilty because he's not talking to me, you know. And, uh, and, and you can see this, even I saw it in a very liberal-minded people that American people are special. This is a message that is so dangerous and is so like, you know, so, to be honest, very annoying to me and very like, uh, very counterproductive to the uh, to the cause of uh, freedom and uh, in the world and you you really like very I, I i dealt with just regular like american people who really think that they are better than mm. the rest of the world and honestly you cannot have a government doing all of these things without having some kind of support on the ground you know for these acts or i would say at least i'm not important for you know, to be uh, made fuss about, you know. That's why I was kept in Guantanamo Bay. Even after the court cleared me, six years after the court cleared me. So, you you know, you get there and you are, you have no idea what's going on. You're, you're in an isolation cell surrounded by these very rabid guards at the time. Um, and unbeknownst to you, somebody was speaking against you, and this is the reason why they basically pressured you at, at Guantanamo Bay. But you Torture. found out later that it was Ramzi yes. bin Al Sheib who actually who was being tortured at the same time, correct? Saying that you you had met him in Chechnya, and that he, this would turn out, of course, to be untrue. But I want to hear from you because. Actually, what the government now implicates was that because of Ramzi bin al-Sheib's admission to torture, that you actually had met with Muhammad Atta, Mawan al-Sheib, and told them, don't go to Chechnya, but go to Afghanistan. And right. that became the plane's operation. So I'll let you explain what happened here, Mom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You would be like shocked if you don't know this already, what I'm going to tell you. So uh, first, actually, so when they start to uh, pressuring me with, uh, with, uh, so the first time I saw Ramzi Shebe photo, it was in Jordan. And then they showed me the photo. I knew one thing. I knew I saw this guy, but I had no clue where or when I saw him. This face, this face ran, or, you know, I, I saw this face one time. And then I told him I don't know him. 
and then but they kept bringing him in Guantanamo Bay really the FBI the military what do you know about this guy and then I went back because they told me this is Ramzi Shaberi and then I went back to the block I was back then in uh, in Mike block and I asked the people why they keep asking me about this guy and then this guy by his name is Malik he was laughing he said Muhammad I was captured with him this guy, they said he's responsible for 9-11. <laughs> I think I almost wet my pants when he told me that. Because this was like very serious, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then I said, I told him, Malik, why they said that he talked about me? I don't know this guy, I told him. He said they tortured him really bad because he was like, when we were in the, uh, in the black side, he told me, they were torturing me. He was crying all night long. We could hear his cry all night long. And then I said, I am really in bed. You know. So what happened? So they asked him about me. And then obviously, I don't know, but if he was telling them the truth, we met in, in, in the mosque and uh, and they, uh, they then I invited him with other friends and then we ate at my home. So that's it. I don't know him. And then, uh, so, and uh, so when they encouraged him with torture, he made up a story. This is one of the most amazing stories you will ever hear in your life. They said, you need to tell us about this guy. Because this was like their golden opportunity. I was like not leaving uh, apparently any evidence anywhere. And now they have someone, some guy who can really provide them the evidence and then they can say everything we did everything we believe was true he said okay yes he sent me to afghanistan they said okay how do you know him he said i met a guy and he gave me his number they said what the name of the guy he said khalid al-masri so khalid is a name very common name al-masri means from egypt and this Khalid al-Masri became the obsession of the CIA and the FBI. Because this is the connection between me and Ramzi. Mm -hmm. And they went back to Germany and they found a Khalid al-Masri. Right. They were following him until he left Germany. He's a businessman and they kidnapped him in, uh, they kidnapped him in uh, Albania. He was tortured in the black side and then when they found out that this guy has nothing to do with anything he doesn't even know me they dropped him back in in albania so when they came back to me i said i don't know i don't know khalid so why so when they, they tortured me i said yes yes khalid i'm sure i know khalid al-masri uh, and yes he gave me and I told them, I corroborate to them under torture, whatever the guy told them. So, and of course, this later on uh, proved to be very, very false and very horrible because when they uh, told me to take a polygraph, I was so scared. I said, I don't know this guy. I don't know any of this. They said, you just said what you want to say in this polygraph. And I took back everything, you know, and then I passed the polygraph, you know. And that's how bad and how uh, these, uh, you know, these zealots are completely like, 
you know, not really protecting uh, your country, but just doing anything, you know, you know, jumping on anything, you know. The, what, what's profound about your story at Guantanamo is that um, the sheer amount of psychological and physical torture you encountered and you experienced through the book uh, various amounts of torture. Most people under such duress would break almost immediately. You actually held out far longer than I, even I realized, but what made you hold out for so long? I really don't know. <laughs> to be honest, it's just, you know, hope. Because I was saying every day, this is going to stop. But this was not going to stop. Every day, you know, because I didn't know any more days or night. Right. I was like living in a, in a, you know, other dimension. I, I, I don't know. And every time, you know, they assault me sexually, they beat me, no food, you know, all kind of humiliation, you know, pain every day. And every time I said, ah, this is going to pass. I'm just waiting because on them to give up. But this was going on, you know. And then when they came to me, they said they're going to kidnap my mother. I broke. I said, whatever you want me to sign, you give me a blank paper, I sign it, and you can write anything you want. This was their golden opportunity, you know. And then I wrote them. And then uh, uh, Sergeant Charlie, you know, he, he came up and he, he told me what they think I did. And I wrote it down and I signed it. And, you know, ironically, this was like the undoing of their plan. Because those people don't think anymore. They were so drunk on the uh, power they had that they just took all this confession and took it to uh, to uh, the prosecutor, military prosecutor. And, and they came to me because uh, they told me you are the first death penalty. And, uh, you know, I wish I could tell you you know, I had no feeling I was numb when they told me. And he was like explaining to me what death penalty means, everything. And I was listening. I was just waiting on him to go away because I want to go back to live in my head in the cell, you know. Mm. And uh, yeah. And this was like so crazy because they were so like, they want this on the fast lane, like death penalty, you know, convict them to death send them to the firing squad. That was their, like, you know, their mentality back then. And, you know, because their people, those people are not lawyers, you know. And, well, you know, I met uh, Couch. I did an event with him in Switzerland last year. And, uh, you know, he was, like, explaining to us, I, I don't know, I remember his words, but that death penalty case, you need evidence. When he saw that was... Mm. No evidence, like, you know, a confession under torture is not evidence. It is not corroborated with anything else, you know, zero corroboration, you know. I couldn't have done what I signed for them. But I'm telling you, when someone tells you I'm going to kidnap and, 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 and uh, like, assault your uh, old lady, uh, mm. there is nothing you wouldn't sign, mm. you know. I made peace with death penalty, you know. They, they kept you in an isolation cell. Like you were the most important prisoner at Guantanamo Bay. Yes, number one. Yeah, you were you were the most important prisoner. 
and they kept you in this isolation cell away from everybody else. Um, you were disillusioned. You had no idea where you were. And at this point, um, you started cooperating because you were getting tortured, threats to your family and whatnot. When did you start having an idea? Because they started giving you basic things back because you started cooperating. When did you start getting the idea of writing a diary? Uh, actually, I want to write a diary. Uh, the first time I got, uh, I got to, uh, I got a pen and paper, and so I. Uh, so they they start getting paper, so and to to write letters the detainees. And I think the first time or second time I got to write a letter, and then they they refused me. I couldn't have pen anymore uh, to keep or papers to keep because I was uh, uncooperative, quote unquote. And then I started to like steal or borrow from other detainees, you know, through the cell because I wasn't yet in. And then I start writing. Uh, my diary in Arabic, French, German, and very little bit of English. Mm. English was only like to learn English. And then they came to me and they took everything away. That was my first attempt. Right before they uh, took me to the torture program, they took everything away. And then the whole idea died because I had much more important thing to deal with, i.e. pain. And then when they, uh, two or three years later, when they told me that I'm going to see a lawyer, I saw a window. And at, back then, I was allowed to have pen and paper, especially uh, that I can write my lawyer. And then I just start writing. And then within days, I wrote 163 pages. And then when my lawyer came, I gave to her. And then she told me, oh, this is good. You need to keep writing. And then I go back and start writing from the beginning. And within two and a half months, mm -hmm. I sent her all the diary that you have. Because I just kept writing in letters, very small, and send her letters and send her. I remember the last page, and then I, I write the next page. That's how I wrote my diary. And at this point, you probably had no idea that you were never going to see home again. Um, considering all the charges they were going to charge you with. Yes, I made peace that- You made me peace. The least I could get is like life because uh, I, it was very clear to me that, you know, unless, you know, there is like a miracle, I wasn't going anywhere, you know. You know, because, yeah. But then here we are in March 22nd, 2010, U.S. District Court Judge James Robinson granted the writ of habeas corpus and ordered your release. Um, but Robinson would state before the court that the quote this is what he would say. The government had to adduce evidence, which is di different from intelligence, which you were provided. But it was false intelligence, showing that it was more likely that Slahi was part of Al-Qaeda. To do so, it had to show the support that Slahi undoubtedly did provide from time to time within al-Qaeda's command structure, but that never happened. So the government, he claims, 
didn't prove this evidence. And so the Department of Justice in would appeal that decision. Now, did that did that make you start to lose hope that you would probably say, well, I'm, I'm going to be resigned to my fate? So, uh, during the trial, as you know, I decided to to do the very like risky thing of you know uh, testifying, and I discussed this thoroughly with my lawyers. Mm. And I told them I have nothing to hide. There is nothing they can tell me in court that I'm afraid of. And they told me it's dangerous because you are open yourself to incriminate yourself. I said, I'm going to take my chance. And they said, they think also that it's good that I testify. But they, they had to explain to me also that it's very risky, very dangerous. You know, what if they say something? I said, I didn't do anything. Mm. That's it. That's that's what I know. And then during the trial, you know, the line, the first line of questioning, I don't know whether you read, but it says, did you read jihadi magazines? I said, yes. Did you watch uh, jihadi film? I said, yes. And then some question like you know, this line, what I read in my life. And then uh, Roberts was, Robertson was so upset with this. He said, he, he said, is this against the law? He was like, no. Nee. He said, I want you to go to for the jugular. The first time I heard this expression. But you ain't got no jugular, do you? He said, no, your, uh, your honor, I don't have a jugular. He said, that's what I thought. And I was crying because this is the first time ever, ever in my life that someone is saying something that is logical to me, you know. Because I wasn't allowed to say anything logical. I was not allowed to, because when I say I'm innocent, they torture me. I have always to say I'm not a good guy, you know. And so, and then uh, he said that I can never be interrogated. This was like more important to me than uh, than winning the thing because this continuous day after day interrogation, every day since I was kidnapped was just so much. And then they came to me, FBI came to me, and then they took all my stuff, like my books, everything. And they said, you need to annul the decision of the court, and then we give you TV, we give you all the movies you want. And I refused, and I stayed six years, you know, resisting, you know, them, you know, to uh, allure me because uh, they, they really were very upset that they had an expert about Islam, about the Middle East, and they lost me from one day to the next, you know, for free. For free, for free. Yeah, yeah. And then out of, out of the blue, June 2nd, 2016, you finally had your periodic review board and then a month later, the news on October 17, 2016, news that you probably wouldn't have never imagined that you were going to be released. And then um, you were free. You were free. You you went back to Mauritania, but they took away your passport. So you, yes. couldn't, right, you couldn't leave. But you were detained for uh, 16, you know, here, here you are, 16 years, which... You know, seemed like an eternity. And 
I can't, I, I study true crime. I can't imagine, and I can't put myself in your shoes. And I can, I can similarly imagine what the amount of sheer terror, pain and torture that you went through only to have this elation, a reversal of, of freedom. And what did that feel like for you? So I remember, I remember uh, the day that they came to me and to announce to me that I was going home. It was this, the most pretty face I ever, the prettiest face I ever saw, this. Uh, uh, US Air Force captain, she stuck her uh, head through the beam hole, you know, and I, I was like days in isolation in my cell. It was hurricane season, I couldn't leave. And she told me, you're going home. You know that? I said, no, I don't. And then I remember what I had in my cell. I had the pictures that my family sent me. And I had a couple of CD from two and a half men. And I have these Shakespeare plays. I asked for them, but I didn't understand anything. But at least if someone saw them, you think that I'm smart. So, and uh, and I didn't know. I was like afraid of outside. I didn't know what it looks like to be outside. Just like if someone comes to you and said, you are going to Mars. You don't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and when I came home, you know, it took me like two or three weeks. I didn't know anything like, I don't have also a remembrance of anything. And I don't, there is no recollection of those like two to three weeks. I didn't know what I did in them. And uh, I was shocked when I came to the, uh, to the uh, like civil registry asking for my papers and my pass. And they told me you cannot have them. So I was, you know, released from Guantanamo prison and put in a bigger Mauritanian prison because I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone about what happened to me. You know, shoot the messenger. You know, it took me four years of intimidation. You know, you will be so, you have to shut your mouth and so. And then, but I never stopped asking for my rights. I never stopped asking for my freedom. You know, and here I am today in Amsterdam one of the freest, you know, uh, cities in the world. And I, I'm so happy, you know, and I'm so grateful. You know, I met so many people, so many beautiful people. And, uh, you know, uh, I won, you know, a freedom prize uh, of the Netherlands the last year. And uh, I speak the language now, you know, I've been here 14 months and, you know, and I'm just so happy, you know, I'm just so happy. And, you know, I learned one thing, you know, because when you die, you always know what matters to you most. And I know what matters to me. What matters to me is being kind to everyone, mm. you know, and never say anything nasty to anyone. And, you know, try to help everyone I could help, you know, because, you know, let's face it, when the CIA took me from Jordan, it occurred to me I would never go back to my life. And then I wished I was kinder. I wished I was nicer. I never wished I didn't have money. 
I never wished I didn't have all those beautiful women that did not want me. They did not matter to me anymore. And all that matters to me is the thing I would take with me when I leave this life, kindness, and how much I help other people, you know, on their path. That's it. You, you know, through your ordeals, um, this is one go. This is the one question I really wanted to ask you, because studying about you, Muhammadu, after what what you went through, you you know, former detainees of Guantanamo that I've seen, like um, Muhammad uh, Bazag and um, Adifi, I think is another one, um, a couple of others. They seem to be, I don't know, they seem to be almost happier at this point because they experienced so much uh, trauma, so much anger, so much hatred that they went through that the that we here in the United States would think that all oh, that would make us into rabid animals. But that wasn't a case for you people. Now, you met many guards and interrogators during your long 16 years there. Um, you even became friends with one, Steve Wood, who's a former Gitmo guard. Um, exp uh, how, what, what is your overall assessment regarding the people that worked at Gitmo? What, how do you feel about them now? I feel about them now and then that American people, by and large, are kind people. They're finished, very generous, very loud. They want to be good people. They think that Jesus Christ was born in Alabama, and uh, that is his. That he's from the South, hmm. and you know, you know. And unfortunately, they don't know a lot about the the world, you know. And this is like very saddening, you know, because I heard so many stereotype about we are bad people, we mistreat women, and I was just like looking in awe. One of them, he was eighteen years old. He asked me, Muhammadu, I just want to ask you a question. I said, what, which one? He said, why you guys, so you guys, it's a lot of people, by the way, why you guys always let your woman walk uh, behind you 10 feet? And then I, I, you know, I intuitively told him because I don't have a leash that is longer than 10 feet. And, and then they, because I didn't know what else to tell him. <laughs> and so, and they tell me and we discuss and, you know, and the problem that if you don't know anything about the world, it's okay. But if you, if you have the power to, uh, to uh, visit violence against a country or a people, and you don't know anything about them except like very negative stereotypes, it's really very saddening. You know, I decide, you know, I have beautiful friends, people I consider family from the US and, you know, and I want to work with them and for peace and, you know, in the world and for also democracy and freedom in our part of the world. Because I don't believe like when you say Americans, that's a very big group of incoherent, you know, you know, group of people. Uh, but if you say human beings, human rights defender, 
you know, people who believe in values, believe in respect for other culture, that's a group you can like. And I'm trying to find those group because I believe in, in uh, global citizenship that we don't have to wait on governments anymore because now citizens can do stuff, you know, without, you know, we take the lead now because, you know, governments only, you know, like to do war and like, you know, I was in a, I think you saw it. I was like in a, uh, in a event to support, you know, stop the extradition of Julian Assange to the US. And there was this very young man and he, he said something beautiful. He's a little bit radical, you know, because he's young. Maybe, maybe I would have said, he said he does not believe in classification at all. He said there shouldn't be any classification. And he said something good. He said, there is no classification. There is only, you know, nothing is unknown, but the government choose a group of people, like including contractors, and they have access. But because we, the rest of us are stupid, we don't have access to it. So, but there is no something that is secret does not exist. He said, and that was like to me a novel idea. You know that, you know the elite. They choose like certain group of people who have access, but the stupid people, like regular citizens, don't have access to this. You know. <laughs> you know, I, I've kept you on a long time. But I have two, just two questions for you, Mamadou. You know, in in your book, the Guantanamo Diary, you said something quite profound in the last chapter that resonated with me, because it explains the war on terror, explains Guantanamo Bay prison. And it explains almost a lot of the problems that we face in daily life. And I'll quote, it says, quote, when people look at one thing from one perspective, they certainly fail to get the whole picture. And that is the main reason for the majority of misunderstandings that sometimes lead to bloody confrontations, end quote. This holds true today, yesterday, and in the future. Um, I would I would say that the the whole banality of this this story that you've told today and you've told in your book can be explained with this quote because the intelligence services the governments only got one perspective and your perspective was forced they didn't get the whole picture and that's why nine eleven is unsolved. That's why a lot of these experiences of former Guantanamo prisoners, their stories are basically wrought with um, misunderstandings, confusion, which led to violence unto themselves. And the government got one perspective, but this perspective is false. So uh, it's, you know, I will tell you something that I find so amazing. It's just I think it's just in in uh, in line with what you, you said. You know the biggest, you know, the biggest threat to uh, uh, xenophobia and to racism and to war mongering is learning and studying. So we have. <laughs> We have a very known uh, politician in this country, in the Netherlands. His name is uh, Arnaud 
Van Dorn. He's very known. He used to be a, a, a extremist, uh, this right extremist party, P, uh, uh, VV, PVV. And uh, he set out to write a book about Islam, the evil, quote unquote, evil religion of Islam, because that's what his party liked to say. And, you know, Dutch people are very, you know, very hardworking people and very kind people. And, you know, he wants to write a book, he needs to research. And he there are interviews with him I can send you. And he started to study. <laughs> he came back and he told his parties, I'm I'm a Muslim now. And I saw the the comment of uh, Gert Wilders. Gert Wilders is very known, you know. He said, they, the journalist asked him, what do you think about this conversion? He said, that's like a vegetarian opening uh, a slaughterhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is like, you know, if you really, I, I really think that people who want war, people who want, who hate other culture, they should not read any books. They should not study anything, you know, because that's will really hurt them badly. What what is the ultimate aim of your diary, Mahabadu? And what and currently, what are you what projects are you currently working on now in the future? You know, I, I like the saying, you know, uh, as long as the line does not know how to write, the story will always uh, glorify the hunter. And to be honest, you know, we really don't know all the time the motivation why we do what we do. We don't know it all the time. Most of it uh, resides in the in the in the subconscious. So, and I really want to tell my story because the story that the government is telling the world about me is really ugly. I'm a mass murderer. I, I I'm I'm a killer of women, children elderly and everybody in between. That's not something that my family raised me to be. My family raised me to be a kind person, to help everybody, you know, they instilled all those values to me. And I couldn't live with this story that the government is saying about me. And I want the world to know who I am, you know. And I think that was a very big thing uh, for me. And now I'm working on uh, so I, I, I help write three uh, theater pieces, uh, Freedom, Fortune, and now the latest that going to premiere next week in Germany, but I cannot be there because I'm banned from traveling to Germany. It's called uh, Yara's Wedding. It's based on Orientalism for, of Edward Said. Oh, and yeah. this has to speak about this narrative that was crafted uh, from the uh, colonial powers about the Middle Eastern man, you know, and uh, the Middle Eastern person, actually. And yeah, and uh, and most of what I do is just laying around and waiting, you know, that's yeah. it. You know, I'm not, I don't have big plans. I'm not an American. I don't want to have like, to be a gazillionaire or anything. I'm, I'm happy where I am. What would be what's your what would be your advice to people who have lost hope or are losing hope and are going through a very troubling time? What would be your advice to the to these people? 
your message? So I don't want to put my myself in a position to uh, that make me like a guy who is able to give advice to anyone or you know looking down to people. You know there is this French philosopher. His name is Montaigne. He said, "Je n'enseigne pas, je raconte." I don't teach. I tell stories. So. And I can tell you from my experience, there are beautiful people everywhere. You need to connect with those people. And you never ever give your right to, li to uh, life and freedom, but always do it peacefully and try to find the right people. When I came here, it was almost impossible. I was banned from all Schengen countries, 30 European countries. One slap from America, they banned me, you know. And I have people standing by me, you know, from everywhere, you know, including politicians. And now I'm here, you know. It took time, but, you know, uh, and I just urge everybody just to connect with the right people, you know, you get, when you have with them the same goals, you know. Mohamedou Old Slahi Obeni. His book is Guantanamo Diary, the film, The Mauritarian. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us today, Mohamedou. Thank you, my brother, Adam. And I'm looking forward to hear your uh, podcast. Thank you, pal.